G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to Footyology with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to episode 9 of the Footyology podcast. The semi-finals done and dusted, two more teams in mothballs, there's just four teams left in the race for the 2017 flag. It's getting exciting, how are you Mark Fine? I'm well because they keep knocking teams out. But footyology still survives. We've made it through to the prelims. <laughs> oh, we're going to last a lot longer than that too. Mark my words, young man. Well, a lot to talk about. Two big semi-finals. We've got two big preliminary finals coming up. Lots of other associated issues around the games and around things happening in the footy world generally. Let's not waste any time. Let's get straight into it. On footyology, that's a wrap. Okay, the semis are done and dusted. Uh, big performance by the Cats Friday night. Perhaps surprising even themselves. Great win over Sydney. I think it's fair to say, finally, not many people saw that coming. And then Saturday night at uh, Spotless Stadium, GWS playing the sort of footy we all know they can play, but uh, probably fair to say, begun to ask ourselves, were they actually going to reproduce it at any stage this year? Result. West Coast done and dusted. Two huge preliminary finals to look forward to. What would you make of it all? First of all, I made, again, of a weekend of really disappointing finals in terms of the neutral. No response from the team that's getting beaten. Now, of course, two of the teams that won on the weekend, Geelong and GWS, were the culprits in week one. But uh, you just wonder about the um, intestinal fortitude of these teams. They're getting headed, and it's... Still to post stuff, of course, except for that Port Adelaide West Coast game. Well, they're both out of it anyhow. But the fact remains that there is a soft underbelly to Geelong and GWS, and the teams that have exited have also proven to be a bit soft. Okay, I've, I've got a big picture theory on this. I've been asking myself why, in a season that's been so incredibly close, um, have the finals been blowouts? Now, the answer I've arrived at isn't necessarily a great one or an encouraging one, it's that as tight as this season has been, it's because the standard at the top might have actually dropped a bit and that's what's brought everyone closer together. And that, by consequence, means that when these relatively inferior sides are challenged in finals and the writing's on the wall, they aren't actually good enough to uh, to mount a comeback and the bottom drops out of it and the result is a blowout. What do you make of that? I'm buying there is no doubt that uh, we are currently dealing with the post-GWS Gold Coast era of inferior football. Obviously, mathematically, it's inferior. 18 teams, less good than 16 teams. But the way that they were introduced and the drain on young talent for a noticeable period of years has really had an effect. And I'll use this example. Geelong has finished second this season and made their way into preliminary final. In 2010, Geelong finished second to St Kilda at the home and away point of the season. They did go on to win the flag. Oh, 09. Oh, 09, yeah. pardon me. Oh, 09. Yeah. Compare those two teams. Uh, yeah. The team, the Geelong team that finished second in 09 is 20 goals better than this current Geelong team. 20? I'm telling you 20. The, the players that still exist were in their prime mm. and the ones that have been replaced. Uh, just have a look at the... Look, there are a lot of Kids running around in this team, Parsons, Parfit, the young Guthrie. There's some kids abusing Colin Jasney off the back line. We're talking about Enright, Mackey, Kelly, Harry Taylor at the peak of his powers, Scarlett, mm. and then Ablett, Barter. It's just incomparable. Ask yourself this, how would... Uh, okay, so Adelaide... Top and, that, and that sort of team would respond when, when down. Adelaide top team of 2017, how would they go against, say, St Kilda top team of 09? Get beaten. Yeah, badly? There's a marked difference between the quality of these teams now. They're more vulnerable, there's no doubt. I mean, I've loved the Crows this year, but their bad points 
have been bad, haven't they? They got blown away by North. They lost a lead and lost by seven goals to Melbourne. They were 50 points down against Collingwood at the MCG. So I think, um, and we saw with Sydney in, in the final on Friday night, even the really good teams are more vulnerable to absolute shockers, aren't they? What seems to be, to me, the trend now is that when there are a precious few champions in this competition, and when they take hold of a game, the opposition become bystanders. We've seen Dangerfield do it, Dustin Martin do it. There's no doubt GWS has got them, whether it was Canilio, Kelly or Shield, it's whether they can ignite together. But quality is rising to the top and winning games really putting the issue. It's, it seems to be a morass of players playing roles and going okay and the stars sorting it out. The good news for Richmond, they've got some stars. No, I think I think that's right. What, what about just the, the margins themselves? I'm struggling to think, and I haven't had time to actually go right through and have a look, but over the first two weeks of a final series, uh, so six finals under this current setup, how many times would we have had these sort of margins? So take out the two points in the Port West Coast game, extra time, of course. The other margins have been 36, 51, 65, 59, and 67. It's not great for the um, the spectacle, really, is it? When you consider that the teams that are winning don't need percentage, so they're coasting to the line anyhow. Mm. Except for the Richmond game, where they did it all in the last quarter, basically. Yeah. Last night's game was one of the least... Uh, pardon me, I should say Saturday night's game, was one of the least finals-like games I have seen. After the first six or seven minutes, GWS and West Coast were actually scoreless, and West Coast didn't fire a shot and meekly pulled out of the season. Well, that was over at half time. The Essendon Sydney elimination final was over 10 minutes into the second quarter. Uh, you're right about Geelong Richmond. That was still in the balance at three quarter time at least. Um, what was the other one from that? Oh, Adelaide GWS over at half time. It was six, seven goals difference at half time re- in the wet. And in reality, except for Sydney's. Record over Geelong and their great finals record. Mm. That game was over at half time as well. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I must admit, I, I, yeah, you didn't, given the sort of conditions we were playing in and the, and how flat they looked, you couldn't see the Swans mounting a comeback at all. So, yeah, look, it's a shame. The the other, uh, we're not going to spend the whole podcast being negative, but the other thing you can't avoid talking about is that. Saturday night crowd at, at Spotless, 14,865. Now, what is the capacity of Spotless? It's about 25, yeah? Yeah, 24 um, to 25,000. So where were they? Uh, you'll be told in New South Wales, obviously there was rugby league uh, major semifinals. There may have been some soccer on at some point. Matildas were playing Brazil. Penrith. There was... They got... Uh, at Penrith. Yep. Uh, yeah, they got 15,000 for that. Yep. Where and the did, where, NRL got 40, I think. Where were the Wallabies playing the Pumas? I think Canberra, actually. Okay. Maybe that's a better place for Canberra being the place that GWS uh, should play their finals. It is their home ground. They can't all. spin the crowd, though, can they? I mean, that is a shocking finals crowd it by anyone's estimate. terrible. It was one of those goals by Johnson in the last quarter. GWS are storming into a preliminary final. They are blessed of talent, and he's kicking the ball. And behind the goals, it is a sea of orange seating. And quite frankly, the VFL game I watched during the day between Richmond and Box Hill had a more densely packed crowd behind the goals. So, like, I've been, I've seen and and read enough about GWS fans to not be totally cynical about this. They they exist. They're passionate. The fan base is growing. But is that saying that a healthy proportion of their fans didn't turn up? Or is that actually all the fair income fans they have? Yeah, they don't have many fair income fans. They simply don't. They Unfortunately, the AFL lost the battle to first hearts in the west of Sydney when the West Sydney Wanderers were formed. They went into the A-League and they were in front of Big crowds, bigger crowds than GWS have ever got from day one. And they, given the ethnicity of the region, they connected and connected quickly and well. There is still a strong anti-AFL lobby from from NRL people, supporters of the likes of Penrith and Parramatta and Canterbury and those teams 
towards that part of town will always not only follow their own NRL, but they will do what they can to um, basically put out the fire, extinguish the AFL fire. And what is left are kids through schools, a lot of work done with, um, yeah, through Auskick and, and uh, development, multicultural development, trying to grab the minds and hearts of youngsters. But are uh, you familiar with the entertainment term comp? Uh, no. Nightclub comps or for a... Oh, complimentary. Yeah, yeah sorry. When you do your final numbers at a concert, they'll always say, how many comps were there? Well, look, I'm... And there's a lot of comps get to No, I believe that. I'm, I'm just thinking about the ramifications for the preliminary final. Now, in terms of the atmosphere, that'll be fine because it'll be a sea of yellow and black. But, I mean, if GWS win that, get through to the grand final, and they win it... It's going to be a different sort of feeling, isn't it? And part of me thinks, look, they're not going anywhere. They're in the competition. So part of me sort of thinks it would be good for them to win the flag if only to expedite that thing about rivalry and people hating them and sort of having some sort of feeling other than ambivalence about them. Part of me is a bit fearful of it uh, happening and the atmosphere being flat as attack. I mean, how, how do you see it? I think they'll, the atmosphere will not be great if, it's a G, if GWS make the grand final. If it's GWS Adelaide, it will be the flattest grand final experience by Melbournians, at least, ever, and really by football fans. It, it will not be anything like we're used to. We talk about corporates filling up the ground, but in Melbourne town, corporates have football biases, and if Collingwood's playing, there's love or hate, Essendon, etc. There's always been something. So, yeah, look, in terms of atmosphere, I guess, and, and this is all allegiances aside, I mean, I, in terms of the atmosphere, it's hard not to think that the best possible result would be a Geelong-Richmond grand final. Oh, the town would rock. It would yeah. be brilliant. And 50 years to the day, too, since uh, their last grand final meeting. It would be so, fantastic. There's already a – it sort of grew out of a bit of animus that came out of the Richmond game down at Simmons a few weeks ago yeah, where yeah. numbers were limited and there was a, some – a, frac- a few fracas and police reports were laid. Yeah. A bit of finger pointing. And then, of course, the argument over where the first final should be held. Yeah. No love lost between the two supporter it, groups at the moment. There was, yeah, well, there's a bit of crowd stuff at the uh, qualifying final too from uh, from all accounts. I've got to ask you the question, Rowan. At the moment, GWS, uh, a premiership team, pointy end preliminary final for the second year in a row with a list to die for. Yeah. What sort of crowds would they be getting if they were experiencing Gold Coast-like lulls? I, I feel, no, it's scary. I, it's fe- scary. I feel they wouldn't have three, 4,000 payers. No, it's scary. And I, I think it's like it was with the Swans for a long time. It's going to be precarious. It's, it's, going to be, it's going to mean that as soon as performance dips south, they've got real issues and it will take like the Swans have been, competitiveness for a, a good couple of decades for, I think, that support base to build to a level where it can sustain a drop in performance. All right, that's enough of big picture stuff. Let's get down to the two semis in detail. So we'll start with Friday night. Um, obviously an amazing performance by the Cats. Hats off to them. A lot of plaudits to Chris Scott, the the moves like, you know, Dangerfield going to full forward. Um Blitzarves on uh, Kennedy. Josh Kennedy really reduced his effectiveness. But also, I think, in a, a, a bigger sense, just being able to cocoon his list from that negativity and really be able to get them back into the business of you know getting themselves back into the business. So hats off to him. Um, it's funny. I, I felt that almost by accident they sort of came up with a more balanced lineup. Menzel back in. I think that that was pivotal. They lost Guthrie, which I thought would really lose them the midfield battle and probably the game. And then they lost Lonigan, who'd been Buddy's opponent. And you look at that and you think, well, they're in all sorts of strife here. But the inclusions all worked. I thought um, Darcy Wang, funnily enough, I mean, he's not a – people don't seem to rate him much, but I thought his pace and run made a, a real positive difference for them. I thought Menegola lifting his game and playing to his maximum output made a huge difference to them. I thought even Ray Stanley coming in, you know, did a little bit as well. It was the and Zach Guthrie played a reasonable game. So the lower profile players in that side all did their bit. But to me, that's what has to happen for them to be a chance of winning the next two games. They it it clicked. 
there's something about the Swans at the MCG, and they now it happens to them regularly there, where they just get caught running in quicksand, and they don't mm. seem to be able to impose themselves quickly on a game like they do at the SCG, or they love playing at Etihad. Well, more more specifically, they struggle with sides that play an uncontested game and and do a lot of chipping around and take uncontested marks. They lost to Collingwood up at the SCG, even. They lost to Hawthorne at the SCG doing the same thing. They lost to Hawthorne at the MCG doing it, and now it's happened again. So They want to crack into the contest early, don't they? Well, the question needs to be asked. Do, does John Longmire have too inflexible an approach with the way they play? Well, if he doesn't have a too inflexible approach, then his team is not well suited to harass and harangue possession retaining sides because it's Geelong obviously are capable of doing it. They pref- they've always been a handballing team, but you can't do it against Richmond, for example. At the moment, they are so all over you yeah. that there's no time to be chipping the ball around in a final and expecting it to end up from one end of the ground to the other, whereas Sydney were backing off. So players who had been incredibly valuable in recent weeks, like Hewitt and... Towers. The, Towers mm. were became liabilities as yeah. they just were chasing tail all night and guarding space and waving their arms. And I don't believe that the players are incapable of doing it, but you're right, I don't think they've been well-schooled in it. Yeah, it's interesting. I reckon there's been games, if you have a look at results, I mean, you know, opponents aren't stupid. They would have looked at how sides have brought them undone and had a go at trying that. And I'm sure there's been plenty of games where teams have tried that approach and the Swans have withstood it. I think the other thing you've got to really consider here is when they pull out shockers. Now, it, it all I kept saying this during the SEN call all night, but I couldn't avoid it. It was so reminiscent to me of the 2014 Grand Final, and that was another game where their form couldn't be faulted. They went in red-hot favourites, and they just didn't show up. Now, it's a pretty bad occasion for that to happen, now it's happened again. So twice in four seasons, in two of the biggest couple of games of the year, they've had their worst performance. Now, what does that say? And yet you look at the consistency after that start this year, 15 wins from 17 and two losses by a kick. There's no problem with their consistency. So why on earth does that happen on the biggest or second biggest night of the year? Do we look at individuals? Do we look at Luke Parker... And failing to fire at the MCG again. Kieran mm. Jack may be finding it too big a ground to have an impact. Uh, well, Ke- Kennedy uh, had 20, I think, for the game. I mean, that's... But he's that's, got a great record there. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And he, he probably could have won the Norm Smith medal last year. So do you think it's individuals or is there a team-based thing happening? It's just, it's bizarre. I've never seen anything like it. The I could run through a, a number of scenarios, but then... It, can't explain why they beat Geelong so comprehensively in the preliminary final. Yeah, well, yeah. So, okay, I mean, so if there is no... To ob- me, to me the, the real issue this year was the enormous mental effort and <clears throat> concerted effort week in, week out after they were 0-6. Yeah, yeah, they had no wriggle room after that, obviously. And But, uh, you know, I went to... Longmire's press conference and I I asked him about that comparison in 2014 and he said I thought we looked buggered to which my response was well you wouldn't have seen that coming surely because they looked far from buggered in the elimination final didn't they and, yeah. and he agreed no he didn't see it coming so I mean, why are they buggered this f- week and not last week not physically buggered in terms of in terms of mental the preparation, effort yeah in terms of the preparation with the bye and a very soft win against Essendon there's no way that they could point to any physical uh, overload as being the issue. But to ask players time and time again that you've got to win this game, and they've had some close calls this year. They had to wriggle out of a game against Richmond at the MCG. Yeah, that was six goals down in that. Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, they're a game against Essendon at the SCG. Yeah. Eventually, it's a group collective effort to keep lifting and dipping into that emotional kit bag. And it only takes a couple of guys just to say, we can't do They've got us. And I think that there was no spark in the team. Once, can, especially the key, key indicators, key players, and I'm not talking about Buddy because he works or he doesn't work, but when 
when Kennedy's not the one, when you're not getting a lift out of Kennedy, Hanbury, Parker, the rest aren't coming along for the ride after the year they've had. Just to, we'll talk a little bit more about the Cats, but just a last one on the Swans. What this, these sort of one-off shockers, geez, they make it hard for a coach reviewing the year and preparing for the next one because there is no obvious structural weakness about them. There isn't. And if you, you know, you've got six months to pour over the fact that you've pulled up short, what conclusion do you come to other than we had a shocker at the worst possible time? And how do you go about redressing that? Well, I don't know how you can. They go back. Go back to the well. They go back. They do the pre-season. They understand that change is slow in football, that the competition isn't overly strong. They make sure they don't start 0-6. And they guarantee themselves in their own mind a top two finish. The one thing I would ask, they had a very good structure for most of the year after that 0-6 start. Mm. Lewis Millican came out last week. Yeah. And... He was replaced by Harry Cunningham, who I don't know what role he plays, but he, it's not significant. Mm. Now, Millican was available. Why did they not revert to a role that they were more comfortable with in terms of the lineup? And then they would have had somebody else to play on Dangerfield other than the outstrength Rampy. What well, seems to indicate that they weren't feeling threatened by Geelong's forward setup and th- and thought we can afford to lose one there and put an extra in the midfield and capitalise on our strength there. Quick one on the Cats. Uh, Guthrie, presuming he's available, has to come in. This is presuming Tom Stewart's fit. Lonigan has to come in. Yes. Um, I wonder if there's a little bit of a risk there that they unsettle this lineup that looked pretty balanced on Friday night. So who goes out for those two? You probably think Zach Guthrie. For Cam Guthrie. No, no, yeah, you leave no. him in. And they like Zach Guthrie. So who goes out? Stanley. Yeah, but he's for Lonigan. Correct. So who goes out for Cam Guthrie? Parsons, who... Oh, okay, yeah. Who did precious... He did nothing on Friday night. Yeah. Which is roughly what he did the week before. Yeah, okay. No, fair enough. All right, let's move on to Saturday night's game, uh, which I think we're, we're all agree and we've discussed already was a bit of a stinker as far as spectacle goes, but... Hats off to the Giants, and you could tell they were on from the start, couldn't you? I, I thought Callum Ward, not for the first time, sort of set the tone. Scully's hard running in that first quarter was really valuable, had a couple of goal assists and I think kick one. And then you've got Shield, Cornelio, Whitfield, Kelly. Jeez, when, and when Green. And, well, yeah, drifting up a bit. When, when they're all on song, it's a, a really difficult midfield combination to deal with. Their forward line looked a lot better for not being as tall. Patton is the sole tall. Stevie J back in there. Green, as you say, playing a terrific game. Um, but they had that obvious... They looked to me like a team which was sick of having its work ethic questioned and was really keen to make a point. And, and by quarter time, the scoreboard wasn't overly lopsided by quarter time, but even by then the clearance and contested ball numbers were and the writing was really squarely on the wall. I don't trust them still. You know, they have no problems, as the numbers showed last week against Adelaide, at coming out and hunting the play with the ball. They've been well-schooled in, if you don't have it, work your backside off to stop your opponent. What they don't like is when they do have it and they get hunted down and they get brought to ground and they played the worst. Look, West Coast have it, had it in them a couple of times this year to really apply themselves. But the level of concentration of Lewis Jetta, of Cripps, of these players who are quick enough to hunt down players doesn't stretch week in, week out, obviously, because the record shows, Your Honour. The other midfielders are too slow. So I had no doubt that GWS would come out and hunt their opponents, but they were not in turn hunted and they started travelling in ones and twos, and players would have the ball, and Shield would call it off somebody's shoulder. Toby Green's first goal, a lovely snap around the corner, was a give it me from Whitfield, I think. Why was he? Why were they running in tandem against one player? And West Coast became easy, exactly the sort of team GWS like destroying. Well, they're not going to get that against Richmond, I promise. Okay, so... I'm, it's just a warning that... Uh, 
Oh, it's obviously going to be a lot harder for them. Yeah. Richmond are the best, in some ways, the best defensive team in the competition. Yeah, I don't think their problem is laying tackles or applying pressure. It's what becomes of them when pressure <clears> is applied to them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you give them half an inch, the skill level really cuts you exactly open, doesn't right. it? Um, let's talk briefly about the Eagles. Uh, the Eagles won me back a bit over the last two weeks. First of all, just getting into the eight by beating Adelaide. And then, you know, that was a really gussy win over Port. But just when you think, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're looking better, they sort of bring it undone again. And I wouldn't say spineless performance, but you knew pretty early on in the piece that they weren't going to win this game. In fact, I just want to ask you quickly, there was a – I wrote about this in the Footyology Match Report, um, which you'll find on the site if you want to read. But I thought – it's hard. It's funny to say about a game that was won by 67 points, but I thought there was a really pivotal moment just before halftime. Mitchell had kicked a goal, brought it back to 31 points. Ball goes into midfield. Looks like two GWS players are going to mark it. Josh Kennedy sprinted 30 metres to create the contest. I know it on the outer flank. Brought the ball to ground. They won it back. Kennedy picks himself up, sprints back to the Ford 50. He's standing there in acres of space, and Lewis Jetter goes to the pocket and Jamie Cripps instead of Kennedy. Kennedy kicks that goal. They're back within four goals, go into halftime having kicked the last two, and then it went. It rebounded. Toby Green kicks a goal. Six goals a margin. Game over that moment. Did, did you remember that bit I of remember, play? I remember it distinctly, and it's funny because I had a moment in the game at the end of the first quarter that I thought was the telltale moment of what the game. What was it? It was just after Mark Lacroix had picked up and kicked a very good straight snap, I'd call it. Which brought it back to 10 points. Yep. Which was three straight to 4-4, four, four, which was not indicative of the quarter. Yeah. And there was about 90 seconds to go. The ball broke from the centre and went forward for GWS. And West Coast were defending valiantly. Now, I be- I'm not sure who the players were. I think Hearn tried to get it out of there once. Prittis tried once. And maybe Shepard tried once. But each time, there was a, couple of, there was a, a good smother or two in there. And a defensive mark on the wing with the ball kicked back into the forward line eventually and West Coast were valiant but could not get it out. Oh yeah, yeah. And through yeah. and through just constant effort, almost tug of war like the ball break to Callan Ward, Ward who kicked a goal that gave them just just enough reward for the first quarter not to give any encouragement to West Coast heading into the break. He's a great captain, by the way. Yeah, he he doesn't get enough kudos as a captain. I, I thought he, he really did set the tone in this game, and he does so often, and they've got so many more brilliant players that he probably doesn't get the attention he deserves. But no, you're right. That that was a, a key moment. So, so um, okay, GWS, they're, they're right in the hunt. I think I agree with you about it's going to be really tough against Richmond for a number of reasons. If not, I mean, the crowd, it will be the most one-sided finals crowd in history. No question about that. But they, if nothing else, they got their confidence back and, and, and they got some form back. So they're back in the ball game. Where do you reckon the Eagles are at looking ahead to next year? Obviously, they've got three retirements. They've got a decision to make about Lacroix. Mm. I think uh, his future and Wellingham's future and Josh Hill's future. So Wellingham, sorry, just quickly... That, I wasn't happy with that selection. Partington, you know, like you, you bring a young guy in, he does well, and then you drop him for a bloke who's been around and hasn't performed. That didn't send a good message. No, but they've got to make a decision. We'll know what they think about their list, whether or not they retain those players, because they should be moving on. I I cannot. We're doing uh, hot and not shortly, so I'll, you'll find out about Crips in a moment. But... A forward line, obviously they get back their best player next year. That's one thing. I mean, yeah. Nick Natanui should not be underestimated. No. In this era of champion-driven wins, he wins games. Yep. The problem that they face is that they've got a number of players that need to be reviewed, and they can't review them or remove them all. Gaff is being sought in Victoria. They should get something for him while they can. He's not central to their needs. They need to bolster their midfield and in an ideal world, trade Darling. But they just can't hive off too many players because they're going to have they've got retirees. Butler's retiring anyhow. Mm. There's a, a big list shift there. And quite frankly, what we've learned in the last few years, there's just not enough good players to come in if you think you're going to clear out ten or twelve. Well, I think age is a major issue, and it's obviously Prittis and Mitchell 
part of that, and they go and Petrie as well. But beyond that, you know, Hearn, Kennedy, um, Lacroix. There's McKenzie. Ma- uh, yeah. And the other, who's the other defender? That uh, Schofield. Schofield. Yeah. Um, who else are we talking about? Even guys like Hutchings. You know, they're not necessarily that young. So you're looking at a real generational change there, and that might take them out of contention for a couple of years. All right, we're going to wrap this up, but I reckon, finally, I've just decided this now, executive decision, we're going to put our nuts on the line and make a preliminary final tip. So we'll start with the Friday night game, Adelaide-Geelong at Adelaide Oval. Who wins quickly? Adelaide by 31. Ooh, okay, that's confident. Um, I'm going with the Crows, one each this year. I think the Cats, the Cats have won in Adelaide, so it's not beyond them, but I think the Crows have been the best side this year and I think they're very conscious given some recent finals failures of actually getting the job done this time at least getting to a grand final so I reckon the Crows are good enough to win I I think it'll be closer I, I reckon Adelaide by 12 points alright Saturday 4.45pm strange time which we'll come to later on uh, at the MCG Richmond GWS who wins Richmond by 41 Ooh. Confident. Again, busting them open. Yeah. After a bit of a, a struggle, yeah, busting yeah. them open. No, you could be right. I'm reasonably confident the Tigers, I wouldn't say have got their measure, but when you think about it, they should have beaten them first time around, did beat them at the same venue second time around, played the sort of high-pressure, intense physical game, which I think worries the Giants. So, yeah, I'm going Richmond by 30 points. So we agree. Adelaide, so we're looking at an Adelaide-Richmond grand final. By the time each of GWS's privileged midfield have got a don't argue to the thorax or the sternum or wherever he places it, they'll know that this isn't, uh, they, they ain't in Kansas anymore. All right. Well, let's not, get ahead. Dorothys. let's not get ahead of ourselves, but it is time to move on. On Footyology, hot or not. Rightio, self-explanatory this segment. I'm kicking us off, and it's with a hot, and I do like this guy, Sam Menegola. Been a fantastic addition to the Cats. Had a rare down night last week in the qualifying final. In fact, I think his ordinary game was a major reason they were disappointing and beaten in the midfield. If they were going to be able to play someone like Paddy Dangerfield up forward, it was absolutely essential that both Menegola and Mitch Duncan played really good games. Well, both of them played terrific games. This guy, I thought, was right up there, if not best on ground, pretty close to it. 26 disposals, 8 tackles, and 2 goals. This is what I like about him, finally. He's a big-bodied midfielder, but he gets forward and he hits the scoreboard as well, and he likes it. He likes a goal. Terrific bloke, incidentally, too. A really nice fella. And um, he's had a terrible run over the journey, so deserves all the success that comes his way. But, you know, if the Cats are going to go somewhere, going to win this week and indeed end up winning a flag, absolutely mark it down. This guy will have played a big part in it. He's a gun. My first hot is the umpiring on Friday night. While the game was physical, and there was a physical element to the game. I mean, Sydney didn't just lay down. They threw something at Geelong, who threw something back at Sydney. The umpires let it happen, and they also did not reward people who ducked their heads into tackles. I'm not talking about the shrinking tackle, not talking about the shoey or the Selwood. I'm talking about driving your head into somebody. Play on, brother. So there was some good, hard, physical knocks. No one was overly... No one was badly injured, and Australian rules football looked like Aussie rules football to me on Friday night. Fair call. Okay, I'm going with the knot now. Um, I wouldn't call this an elephant in the room, but Gary Rowan in big uh, games. Uh, it's not a pretty picture. And this has been said a couple of times now, but I thought after last night, uh, sorry, after Saturday night, after Friday night, how's the hell am I going? I thought I'll just do the math here and have a look at his finals record. Here it is. As you might have expected, it ain't pretty. 15 finals. He had seven possessions on Friday night against the Cats. He's now played 15 finals. He's kicked a total of 10 goals, so averaging less than a goal a game, which, I mean, he is in there to kick goals. Average, 9.2 disposals in 15 finals. So you've got a guy who plays a small forward, sometimes midfield role, averaging fewer than 10 disposals per game over 15 finals now over the course of six or seven seasons. A couple of his absolute worst 
have been in grand finals. I think last year's grand final, he ended up with something like five possessions. Um, I think the Hawthorne one in 2014, it was something similar. So it's a shocking track record and a big issue for the Swans and him. My next is a not, and it is Jamie Cripps of the West Coast Eagles. For anybody out there that says, well, you're a St Kilda supporter, this is just sour grapes because he left St Kilda. Uh, Believe you me, I'm so pleased that he left St Kilda. He is just the sort of footballer that will always cop it when a team gets uh, their pants pulled down, especially in a big game. But his ability to actually walk during the all-important third quarter where if there was any comeback to be had, it was going to be done on the back of desperation. Just have a look at Shuey. The Mohawk man tried his guts out after getting them into the game. And Jamie Cripps is a very, even for West Coast players, uh, West Coast supporters, a very um, iffy commodity that tests their loyalty at times. Well, when you don't follow them, you just ask, why do they put up with that at times, seemingly inept effort that he puts in. Okay, a couple of negatives. I'm going to finish off with a positive. Another hot and another bloke who has turned around a pretty poor opening finals performance, Rory Lobb for GWS. Now, a lot of talk about GWS's forward line, overly tall, and he uh, he no doubt had a Barry Crocker against the Crows. Probably almost a happy accident in some ways. Mumford gets injured. It threw him greater responsibility, no doubt, basically taking the ruck roll on his own. And uh, I thought he did really well up against a tandem that had been pretty effective in Vardy and Petrie. Um, I thought he well, he won the, the tap-out battle. He had 39 hit-outs. But he was decent around the ground as well. Uh, nearly a dozen disposals, four tackles. Um, thought he really got involved and, and sort of tried to stamp himself on the game and asserted himself physically. And he'd been under a fair bit of heat, and I think his performance over the back half of the year hadn't been great. So the pressure was on, and I thought he responded really well. And so when Mumford was declared out for the season, a lot of people said, well, that's the end of them, and particularly in conjunction with Cameron being out. And uh, rather than sort of rob Peter to pay Paul, I think him going into the ruck has actually helped their forward setup look more balanced and I think he's given him a bit of a presence in the ruck where Mummy was actually struggling for form so well done Rory Lobb uh, great bounce back by you and I've got a hot to finish off with as well and also a giant a player that has had a checkered a checkered start to his football career after being a number one draft selection obviously playing for GWS that's not uncommon Lockie Whitfield came into the game with great fanfare Probably got pushed to the out to the edges of the GWS midfield where he plays on a wing, sort of half-back flank because of the surplus of wonderful inside-outside mids that they have. He's cast more in the role of an outside mid. He had off-field matters that we know that meant that he had a uh, slow start to the year. Last year, was it? When was uh, Lock- Lockie Whitfield's indiscretion? Uh, this year. No, it was this season. So... He was put on the back burners, but could still train. The guy has a reputation for not being the toughest animal in the zoo. But you know what? On the weekend, he copped a nice clip just before halftime, came back and after halftime, rattled important possessions together, put his body on the line. His kicking was good. His endeavour was good. And he has actually re-signed at the club and did so with little fanfare or comment from the general media as everybody holds their breath over Kelly. Well done for re-signing quietly, Whitfield. Well done for showing a lot of grit in a final. So there you have it. A few bouquets, a couple of brick bats. Time for us to keep going. On Footyology, Media Watch. Right then, the controversial bit of the show... I say that every week. It's not always supposed to be controversial, but it we seem to get wound up the more we keep talking about stuff because I, some of them are sort of recurring themes. Anyway, this one I thought was a bit different, Finding I was just thinking um, I was at John Longmire's post-match press conference on Friday evening after I'd, I would have been at Chris Scott's as well, but we were still doing interviews in the rooms for SEN. So I got there as soon as I could, which was just as Chris Scott was finishing. 
One thing I'm asked quite a lot, and uh, increasingly so in recent years, is why are there never more senior football journos at the post-game press conferences? The answer is pretty obvious. Well, what do you, what do you think it is? Why are there not more senior football journalists at the game? Well, yes, good point. <laughs> good point. But, I mean, this is a more sort of direct impact for the punter, isn't it? Um, I thought I'd attempt to explain why. So you've got, believe it or not, you've got senior footy writers from the papers who don't actually work on game days, they, they um, you know, they'll have a weekend off, or they'll have Friday night off, or in the case of, um, you know, now I, I don't know this is gospel, but I'm pretty sure it's right. I'm pretty sure the Herald Sun, for instance, don't have Mark Robinson covering games as such. They prefer to use him, you know, in the office trying to get a story or talking about something that comes out of the game. And the argument there is he can watch the game on TV. He's seen the game anyway, and. He's in a position to do something out of that as a result. John Ralph works for Fox Footy, so he is doing news and whatever for Fox Footy. People might say, well, why isn't he doing it for the Herald Sun? Well, it's the same News Corp umbrella, so I guess they'd argue, well, you know, we think he's more value doing that on the TV, which is fine. He he does a decent job of all that news gathering uh, during the night games. But when you think about it... Patrick Smith? Well, Patrick... um, hasn't been a regular at, in the AFL press boxes for a long time. Now, we, I, hopefully I'm not speaking at our school. I, I think Patrick's had some health issues and he finds it really difficult. Didn't he take a tumble off his to roof? Get, yeah, look, he's had, he hasn't been well. So, look, cheers, Patrick, if you're listening. But I, I cut him some slack there. I'd also say about Patrick that, um, you know, he's tended to be a bigger picture, more, you know, sort of footy politics type writer in recent times. So it's not as essential for him. People would also argue that about Caroline Wilson, who, as long as I worked with Caro, she didn't actually work on weekends for the age. But, you know, her best use is elsewhere. But when you add it all up... Where is that? As chief football writer, than at the football on the weekend. Well, that's another discussion we have. I've long thought the title of chief football writer was a complete um, anachronism. I mean, it's just... It's for a time when the chief football writer was... Everything covered all arms of the game. That hasn't been the case for at least 20 years. So that that is an anachronism. But, well, Herb, she's best placed, I think, in the newsroom, on the phone, you know, sort of whining and dining official types, you know, getting information out of them if, you know, if that's what your interest is. And for a lot of us, it isn't that particularly that interesting. But uh, I, don't, I don't dispute that it throws up some pretty decent stories more often than not. So... What I'm getting at here is that you add all those people up and you're left with not necessarily that senior footy journos at the basically the main media appearance of the coach of the week and after a game. when And what happens is the, the irony here is that these are the people who like to sort of set the news agenda in the subsequent week. But that news agenda is often set by what the coaches say at the post-match press conference. So... Wouldn't a senior journo want to be part of that forum where they could help shape that agenda there and then by asking them the difficult questions? And as I think you've touched on this before, too often those post-game press conferences, a line of questioning is pretty soft and pretty weak, to be honest. Have the coaches made it difficult for journalists to ask the tough questions? Have they bullied the aspiring probing question out of the press conference? No, I think quite the reverse. Uh, you know, if I if I put on my in my day hat, which I will, I mean, you know, we regularly got abused by testy coaches in far more challenging environments. You know, in the middle of a tiny dressing room at Victoria Park with nuffies hanging around putting in there two Bobsworth and abusing you and um, you know, that that made for very feisty press conferences and that you know, I've I've seen Mick Malthouse blow up, I've seen David Park and regularly blow up, I've seen Kevin Sheedy blow up. It doesn't happen now because they're under more scrutiny. They've got the T V cameras on them, they can't afford to carry on like a pork chop. So that's made it far easier to ask questions. Plus, I think the crop of coaches we have now in terms of abrasiveness are the most gentle, least confronting we've had. Or, or then the other way, are they so adept now at playing a straight bat that the professional experienced journo just thinks it's a waste of time going there trying to get anything of of 
real newsworthiness. They will say that, but I tend to think it's less them making a conscious decision not to go as they're managers saying we think you are better used in another way so people might ask well why do i go um i go because i like it i like the post-match press conference i think it's uh there's no better time to ask those questions directly pertaining to the game you've seen and what it means down the track for those sides involved um and i like like i just said i think it's the least confrontational environment we've had and i think that allows me to ask more difficult questions than perhaps I might have been able to ask uh, without a mouthful of abuse in return 10, 20 years ago. So, I've, I've been to press conferences. I did them for yeah. a while for afl.com.au and then I used to go to the occasional one just to um, ask the occasional useful question because they really are sometimes... For rank for your sort of rank-and-file home-and-away games, especially ones that don't have a big bearing on the season... They're crying out for some content. The What I found was that there is a resistance to answering questions about individuals. And that's really often what interests me. I will watch a game, observe a game of football, and be curious as to the role or the <clears throat> role played by an individual as given by the coach or how that individual has carried out his day or night's work. But they are reticent. They do not want to be caught in a position of singling out players. Yeah, I sort of understand that from their perspective too because, A, you know, they're probably still quite sort of emotionally charged from the result that's just happened. But, B, like us too, we're sort of in a similar position now. I'm just thinking on the run here. But, you know, the less time you've got to really sort of analyse something in depth and have a look at a replay and have a look at some numbers and whatever, you know, you're, you're a bit worried about, as we might be worried about asking a question that, you know, in retrospect looks silly, they might be worried about giving an answer that is too off the cuff and in the cold light of day and having looked at video and numbers and whatever, they probably wouldn't give, particularly with an individual because they know, you know, they're all smart enough and have enough media training now to know that if any comment about a particular individual will be seized upon rather than if they talk in generalities when it's harder to... Um, you know, it's hard to whip up a sensational headline on it. So, I mean, as, when you're in your role as casual observer sitting back watching a post-match press conference in those Friday, Saturday nights, how do you, do you find that you get much useful out of them? No, only really when there's... Occasionally a coach will have an agenda that he wants to run. Yeah. He'll come in there. It'll be the standard opening question, what went wrong tonight or how did... That game was lost in the second half. What, just an opening question. But clearly, he is going to try and get a message across to the team or reinforce a message that maybe the team didn't pick up on and was disappointed in that. And that's I find that interesting. Sometimes when the coach will go above and beyond what you expect to ram home clearly something that was missed by the players or was maybe missed or, or done extraordinarily well by the players. Yeah. I mean, we see that happen with umpiring a bit, don't we? Um, you know, occasionally they'll go, oh, you can see them go, oh, bugger it, I'm gonna, I might get a fine here, but I need to make a point about umpiring. Maybe more rarely they'll do it with an individual. They do They do it with six-day, you know, sometimes with breaks. Yeah. So sometimes with scheduling, sometimes with umpiring. You know, I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm pondering my own role in the press conference because I... I reckon there'd be times when some of the other journos there would um, hate my presence there, and they they might anyway. But uh, most people there are there for the purpose of writing a news story. So they want to ask a question that elicits an obvious headline-grabbing response. I find myself, and I don't do this deliberately, I'm not being a smart-ass here or anything, but the questions I'm interested in asking tend to pertain to the performance I've just seen. So they're not necessarily, I'm um, just trying to think of a concrete example. It's not necessarily, do you have to think about dropping Luke Hodge now? It's more, um, gee, Hodge's uh, possession rate was well down tonight. Why was that, do you think? You know what I mean? So Yeah, yeah rather than frame it in a, in a negative to the player or a criticism of player or uh, 
speculating on that player's future short Correct. or long term. We, you we, ask what, what went wrong tonight from somebody we expect more from. Which, ironically, can put me at cross-purposes with my own media colleagues. And it's probably a consequence of people writing, specialising in different arms of the football. So there's a, someone doing the hard news. There's someone looking at the game ramifications, which tends to be me. Uh, there might be someone else doing a colour piece on whoever the best game, uh, player on the ground was. So they want something about a specific player, not for a headline, but for a, a colour story on on that performance. So I guess there's a lot of different agendas being pursued at every press conference, both by different reporters and by the coach on the end of it. But um, it's just, it, I've that thing about senior people not being there, what you said at the start, sadly, is right. It's that not many senior people actually cover games anymore, as in writing a match report on a game. And it's weird. Sort of people seem to think, yeah, well, it's a modern era. Everyone can see the game. I, you know, we've discussed this thing about match reports. I still think there's a market for them, which is why I'm continuing to write them on footyology. But I think it, um, if you look at other subject matters, politics, for example, you know, if Malcolm Turnbull's giving a press conference... Uh, I'm tipping most senior political reporters will be there, won't they? You know, if uh, there's a police round story um, and it's about something important, won't the senior police reporter be there? They'll be sent. That's their job. That's their life. So why is it different for footy? I think we've got. A, I think we've come to a point. Same with sorry. Same with cricket too. Now cricket is another sport and another major sport. But if there's a, you know, if if the Australian captain. Is if Steve Smith's giving a press conference, you know Robert Craddock, if he or whoever's covering the tour, they'll be there. But they're committed. You know, covering cricket means covering the tour, either travelling with the team. Yeah, well, you're, your yeah, job, yeah, that's true. Or you're even if it's a, a local test series, that is your duty and your job. You're being paid for it. Yeah, your bosses are probably going to check if you're there. The reality is that football through electronic media can be watched anywhere, anyhow, and. I call them semi-fraudsters. Those who combine watching a bit of the footy with reading a lot of the statistics can write reports on the game, can analyse the game, can come up with what they believe are cogent arguments about the game and they don't need to go to the game. They don't need to even watch the game. They can simply back up what they're saying with the numbers. But I find that I find that, that the sort of... Um, last refuge of the cheat. How, how many do that now, do you think? Quite a few, or they know how to combine, they know how to combine, uh, you know, just a cursory glance of a game, maybe watch the highlights even. Don't, I've, it, it seems plainly obvious to me that with the focus now narrowed to such few players in analysis of the game and also in the covering of the game, that's actually my media watch this week, the trite, obvious, uh, stories and byline storylines that are being written in people's minds even before the game is over. We'll just we'll move on to that now. But, just... but it, it, it's a manifestation of why do I need to go and watch the game in total when all people really want to know is the Dangerfield story or the Selwood yeah. story or Ablett or which is wrong, which is not right. But it's 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 absolutely football one hundred and one. It's 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 the. It's exactly the sort of coverage of the game that should be taken by a, a, a sub-editor or a producer or a director, and that person should be sat down and told, you're here to give in-depth coverage of the game. Yeah, okay. Well, for what it's worth, um, we'll, we'll move on to what you want to talk about. I mean, I, I will continue to cover the games, I will continue to go to the press conferences, and I will continue to ask game-related questions because I'm convinced, as you are, there is a market for this, and hopefully most of the people listening to this right now are nodding their heads in agreement because I suspect you're um, the people we're talking about, and we're sick of being treated like children who can't think beyond a headline. To that end, what what was your particular media watch hobby horse? I'm watching the coverage of the football on the weekend, and before the GWS game is complete, we know that they're bounding into the preliminary final against Richmond. There's already a byline being created in the commentators' heads and I think Basil Zempler started it and was the motivator, but then when he put it to his special comments men, they were forced to buy into it. Luke Darcy and 
Cameron Ling, but I really think it started with the commentator. And that was, well, Deledio is now... What a big week ahead for Brett Deledio. Almost uh, telegraphing the obvious articles about Deledio taking on Richmond, all the old stories of Richmond unable to win without Deledio. The real Deledio story is, will he be able to put together four quarters of finals football by next weekend because he hasn't yet. I don't think we I don't think the real football fan is all that invested in playing against your old team, even though the AFL made a fanfare of it in scheduling over the last couple of years. Dangerfield yeah. will play against Adelaide, Deledio will play against Richmond and they will not be the issue at all. And for professional commentators to buy into it, you know what I feel like? I feel like I'm watching Fox, Fox Sports News out of Sydney with the sort of attention span and grasp of football that runs no for, further than three names per side and the highlights. For example, Steve Johnson was fanfared over the weekend post the game in all coverage of reviews of the game. I guarantee you, Toby Green's three goals were way more important than Steve yeah. Johnson's six. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Did anybody bother to bring that to you as the important, important element of the game? Well, it's funny you say that because the picture I chose to go with the match report I wrote was Stevie J. But I know I agree with you entirely. In the context of the result, Johnson's stuff was the icing on the cake. It wasn't. It was the Steve Johnson show. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah, in a game that was over. You're right, though. You know the irony with what you're talking about, though, the up-against-your-old-side thing is? It's that you can dress it up with different players and different clubs, but it's always the same story, isn't it? This guy's playing against his old club. How's it going to be? Someone will bob up and say, oh, well, we're not going to make it easy for him, but, you know, we're still mates. He still catches up with a lot of these blokes. They'll have a drink afterwards, but for two and a half hours, it's war. Will Brett Delidio have mixed emotions? He'll have mixed emotions. He'll have his emotions will be about as mixed as Huey Bowman is on Winks when he needs to ride it to, <laughs> to the post. Should I win on it or should I run second? What mixed emotions is Brett Deledio going to have? And what uh, what pro is seeing? We're talking about uh, racing and, and betting. Therefore, what uh, odds on a um, not a split screen? A picture, a, a double picture set up in one of the papers with Deledio and Dangerfield. It's already been done on Fox Sports oh, News. Have they? Fox Sports oh, okay. News, as soon as the result was in last night, spoke of the preliminary finals as Dangerfield returning to Adelaide and Deledio to face his Tigers at the MCG. What, what, it's, it's about the crowds. Wait, lie in wait for the returnees of their favourite sons. Yeah, you're right. Actually, you're right about the scheduling too. You know, was it? I can't remember who it was, but when they were actually pumping up the virtues of one particular game, as when someone came back to They've play. They've been doing it for two or three yeah. years. Round four, so he's Brendan Goddard play against St Kilda for the first time. Gee, that'll drag a few more people through the gate. Do I care? Does he care? Do no, we care? Do I, I you know. care? <clears throat> no, it doesn't make sense. No, you're right. That's a pretty handy spray by you. Well done. Um, good segment again this week, and I'm pretty convinced by the end of this year's Footyology podcast, we will actually have no media outlets <laughs> no media outlets left to work in Fanny, but just on that, imagine <laughs> if they were doing that scheduling s- spiel every year. Round three sees Joel Sell would take on Scott Selwood on the birthday of Adam Selwood, who returns to West Coast <laughs> the day after July. <laughs> Who's playing where? Where does it matter? Yeah, enough. All right, time to move on. On Footyology, Roco and Fanny's rant off. Okay, Fonny, we've already expended a lot of angst today. Have you got enough left in the tank for a cracking good rant? Did you just ask me whether I've got enough angst left in me? I did. I've got enough angst in me to rant continuously till there's peace on the Korean Peninsula, my friend. (laughs) Okay, well, let's give it a shot. I'm going to count you in right now. Three, two, one, rant. I'm old, I admit it, and when you get to 50, the old lamps get a bit dodgy. So when I tuned in to watch GWS take on West Coast Eagles, I was impressed by the number of GWS fans that had 
decked out in the bright orange of the club. There they were, all around the ground, until I put on my glasses and realised they're not fans, they're bloody seats. They're empty orange seats. This was the final, the last that GWS would play on home soil, no matter what happened with the result. And it was full of empty orange seats. Where were their fans? Well, they weren't at the game, or they were at the game, or in the end, 14,635 people turned up to see one of the most talented teams of all time play in a knockout AFL final. And you know what? That 14,000's buckwar anyhow. Half of them are comps. You get a free pass to the football with a Big Mac anywhere west of the Sydney Harbour. And I've got it on good authority that quite a few of the people who ended up at the game were in fact diverted from the NRL game at the Anzac Stadium or the ANZ Stadium. They thought they were going into an overflow car park and ended up at an AFL game, which probably explains why a couple of thousand in the crowd kept yelling, knock on, forward pass, forward pass. Look. If people in the west of Sydney don't want to go and watch finals football with a great team, imagine what happens when time erodes them and they become mediocre like the Gold Coast. Then the orange seats will clearly dominate. In fact, I reckon that team should be called Carna Seaters because that's all they'll have barracking for them, orange bloody seats. Impassioned, angry... Thoughtful at the same time. Oh, you orange. You can't get a ticket to a final here in Melbourne. I know. It's a good one? Yeah, no, really, really disappointing. And I think uh, your little tirade there suitably captured the essence of the hardcore supporter you know frustration. That, you know, they'll be feeding the needy in Sydney with the leftover pies and hot dogs from that game <laughs> for a month. All right. It's so, it's I've. True. I've got to match this. I've got to match this. Can I work myself up into a lather or more of a lather than usual? Okay, I'm just, I'm lathering. I'm Come lathering. on, Soapy. <clears throat> lathering. Soapy Connolly. Three, two, one. I'm pissed off about final scheduling, Fanny. More specifically, another preliminary final that's going to be one of those half-pregnant jobs. Not really a day game, not really a night game. What actually is a 4.45pm start? Sort of twilight? Late Arvo? High tea? Now, we all know why it's happening, to satisfy the great God that is commercial television. Or should I say, used to be great God before people got sick of reality TV crap, discovered Netflix and stopped watching free-to-air TV in droves. At least the AFL are transparent about that these days. The press release on Saturday night announcing the time slot said 4.45 would allow GWS to return to Sydney on Saturday night while also enabling the AFL to maximise both match day attendance and television viewership, unquote. But how can we just accept the TV line that now people in Upper Botswana are also suddenly going to be watching the Richmond GWS game because it's two and a half hours later than the traditional start time? I mean, does anyone actually know how many more TV viewers there'll be because it's 4.45, not 2.30? Is it hundreds of thousands? Is it hundreds? Or is it just Ma and Pa Kettle in Rockhampton who can squeeze in the game before Saturday night bingo? That's what I don't get. If you're not interested enough to sit down and watch the second most important game of the year in the early afternoon, why is putting it on late afternoon going to make that much difference? Does it allow Channel 7 to dash straight off to the news like they do on Sundays? No. The game will finish around 7.30, so it's not like they can resume normal programming anyway. As the GWS, if they were playing at a time which really did suit them, as the press release suggests, wouldn't it be one which allowed them to get home three hours earlier than they're going to now? Yes, I'm a traditionalist. Nothing gets me going like a Saturday afternoon in spring, the sun out and the MCG crowd buzzing. I get the arguments about night games and greater TV audiences, but 4.45? Aren't a lot of people out for the day still out then? Most of all, though, I'm loath to accept the estimates of TV people about audience sizes as gospel. Why? Because they're not necessarily the sharpest tools in a shed, that's why. These are the same people who can't come up with any decent ideas unless some US network has done it first. These are the people who thought reviving Hey Hey at Saturday two decades on was cutting edge, the giving Shane Warner Tonight Show at rival Q&A for intellect, and who reckon Here Come the Habibs is Australia's answer to Arrested Development. I reckon there's a bigger chance we're stuck with 4.45 so some Sydney-based TV executive can go to his polo game, shag his secretary in a secret love nest on the way home, and still tell a convincing story about being stuck to the edge of his seat when that Murray Rance guy converted that try for the Richmond Bears just as a hooter sounded. 
Love nest. I like the sound of a love nest. TV executive, seriously. Can I just throw, now that we're completely ruined any chance of us <laughs> ever being on TV again <laughs> yeah. through Media Watch and your rant, yep. can I just mention something about the coverage on the weekend? Very quickly. Well, I thought they had a really good little idea there, and I liked it. As they went at the end of quarters, I think, to ads, they had a little... Uh, a song from the players, from individuals' playlists. Yep, they've been doing that a bit. Why do they play three bars of it? For, you know, I, I can't remember who had Sweet Child of Mine, but we hadn't even got into any deep chords, let alone any lyrics. It was like... Let alone Slash's solo. It was very good idea, poorly executed. Nice segue, thanks, Finey, because, as you know, we finish off this show with an obscure musical wink. Although this week, it's not even that obscure, because as soon as I turned my mind to such matters, I immediately thought of this. Thin Lizzy, Boys Are Back In Town. What a classic song, and very apt for two qualifying final losers who look pretty shabby, but bounce back in a big way to get into the preliminary finals. And I quote, Guess who just got back today? Them wild-eyed boys that had been away. Haven't changed that much to say, but man, I still think them cats are crazy. They were asking if you were around, how you was, where you could be found. Told them you were living downtown, driving all the old men crazy. The boys are back in town. We'll see you next week.